Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Kathy Murray and the Kilowatts. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Get a hold of yourself, baby.
Watts, and we got Kathy Murray and Bill Monster Jones on the line right now. Hey guys, how you doing? Doing great. How you doing, Richard? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Now, it's been a while since you guys have been on the show before, uh, so I always like to give our fans this opportunity to get to know who you are. So give us a story of Kathy Murray and Kathy Murray and the Kilowatts. Um, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Uh, I always tell people the first night I ever saw live music, I was 16 years old. I went to the Armadillo World Headquarters. They would let you in, even if you were underage. Back in those days, Austin was pretty wide open. And the very first night I saw live music, I saw Storm with Jimmy Vaughn, uh, Paul Ray and the Cobras, and the Nightcrawlers with a young Stevie Ray Vaughn. And it completely changed my life. It was just wonderful. Okay. Now, what was that? Was that the moment that kind of decided that this was the career path that you wanted? Um, I started out as a photographer. And I took, photographed uh, a lot of early photos of the Thunderbirds and uh, Stevie and the cavalcade of blue stars that came to Antones and Soap Creek Saloon. Um, Bill Jones, his older bro- Bill was, uh, he can speak for himself, but I'll tell you um, that he was raised in Port Arthur, Texas, and his older brothers were going to the University of Texas in Austin, and they would bring him up on a bus. And he, as a young teenager, would see all kinds of shows. Uh, Bill, you want to talk about that a little bit? Right. I, I, I also came to, from Port Arthur to Austin, and uh, my first musical inspirations was I went to the Armadillo and saw Freddie King, is a blues guitar player, and he inspired me. So I had to go, that that set my path right there. I had to go out and get a uh, Gibson three thirty five and learn how to play Hideaway. Okay. Uh, now, tell me a little bit how the band got together. Tell me uh, how that started. Well, Bill and I uh, came up in different bands. Um, I uh, was 21 years old, and there was this infamous club in Austin on South Congress called the Austex Lounge. It was live blues seven nights a week, and it was the place where touring acts like Bonnie Raitt or Robert Cray or Stevie Vaughn would come after their big shows at the Irwin Center and hang out. So it was just an amazing place, and 
uh, one night, you know, friends had always heard me sing in the car, and they talked me into sitting in, and that led to me having a Sunday night residency at the Austex for several years, which was really great. Bill came up with uh, a world-class harmonica player that we lost a few years ago, a dear friend of ours named Paul Orta. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul, but Bill and Paul formed the Kingpins down in Port Arthur. That's right, and Kathy, the kilowatts and the Kingpins were rival bands, <laughs> so we'd be shooting for the same gigs. And uh, Kathy, one time she needed a guitar player and called me up, and I said, sure, and I loved her material, and we've been together ever since. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about this new release. Um, when you were putting this together, what was your goal or your or your uh, message that you were looking to put across with this particular release? You know, so many people tell me that um, the album is dead and that everybody wants singles. and But, you know, I'm, I'm old-fashioned, and I like an album, and I like to... Uh, be taken on a ride by an artist with an album and I like to take people on a ride uh, with an album and I can't you know there's so many songs that if you were just buying singles you wouldn't have really delved in so deeply and grown to love um, so I, I spent a lot of time choosing the songs for this album and putting them in an order that I thought would kind of take people on a nice wave okay well, you know, I, 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 I tend to be on the other side of that coin. I don't believe singles are, are what people want today. Number one, nobody's buying any music today, no matter whether it's an album or a single. They're listening to music differently. They're listening to music. They're creating a soundtrack for their lives, for their activities, for their moods. So that's really the mindset of the listener. So if you look at that as a benchmark, when they go up to look at an artist, if the artist does not have a body of work in order for them to choose the music that fits their mood or their activity or whatever the case may be for their playlist, they pass that artist by and go to another artist. You know, it a single does nothing for an artist. There's no monetary value to it because nobody's buying it. Why right. do a single? It doesn't make sense. Um, we're well aware that when we record, we don't intend to make money on the recordings. And you don't, re right now, you know, you can have lots of plays, but you don't make a lot of money uh, on, on the plays either. But what it is, is that people buy the CDs quite a bit at our shows and understand that that might be, yeah, that that might be as a keepsake sake. But we know a lot of people that have CD players in their cars and they always telling us, you know, they're playing our music on the road trips. Um, but, but we understand that the money that artists are making now is from their merch and from our live shows. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the job of a musician is doing live music. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about your process as songwriters. When you sit down to write, what, what do you do that allows you to tap into the muse? One thing that I do is anytime I have an idea about anything, I either record it 
or I write it down. So, you know, I've got so much raw material to draw on where I'm going to create an album. And uh, I don't know, it does seem like you are tapping on a muse. Sometimes uh, you'll have two files on the computer and something will just tell you to open this file when you're looking for a, a verse. You want to write another verse for a song and you'll find the lyrics just perfect for that. Uh, it, sometimes it does feel like it comes to you from, from somewhere else. Okay. But I, I, um, I, I pretty much always start with a title of a song. All right. Now, um, let's talk a little bit of, of about melody as opposed to lyric. Um, you know, some songwriters like to work off a groove, you know, a, a rhythmic kind of element in order to find melodies, allow them to free form. Others take the, the, the lyric and work off the cadence of that lyric, which would suggest where the melody should go. When you look for your melodies, what is your go-to to find melodies? Usually when I write the lyrics, the melody just comes to me at that time. Uh, also, I have a, an app on my phone called Voice Loop that I really like. And so anytime I have a little melody going through my head or Bill will be thinking like of a cool groove, we will capture that. And then we'll always go, you know, when I'm writing songs, I'll go through that and I'll go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flesh that one out. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, the cell phone. You know, it's a great tool for a songwriter. Uh, and, and I think a lot of songwriters have embraced, embraced technology today as tools in their toolkit. What are some of the tools that you have in your toolkit that helps you when you sit down to write? Well, it, it is amazing to have those, those recordings. And like uh, when I was recording a song that's on the new record called Break Up, Break Down. And I knew what I wanted the horn parts to sound like, but I don't play horn. So, and I, and I don't know how to chart that stuff out. So I sang those horn lines into the voice loop and then I took it into our meeting with, with the horn section and they were able to create that horn, those horn lines from that. And I kind of woke up one morning and I had those horn lines in my head. If I hadn't had something to record them on, I, I could have easily lost that. Okay. Now, you know, every songwriter gets to that point where they have to put the pen down. They have to determine that the song is ready to move into production, allow it to go to the other members of the band, put their fingerprints on it. What do you do to determine that moment in a song's life? I, I go over the songs with a fine tooth comb some of them take 20 years to write break up break down I, I think I had most of it 20 years ago but it just wasn't quite there it wasn't quite cake for me and then it was uh, the Henny Penny Blues um, that one came to me a lot faster but I really feel you should never be afraid of a rewrite I want Every, I want every verse to be strong, you know. I want every word to to make sense, and I want the uh, the feel and and the speech in the song to be casual and um, 
lots of times you'll go through there and you'll look, what words can't, can I remove here? Okay. More vowel-centric and it can sound better to the ear. Sometimes I'll remove a word and I'll go, and then later I'll be, mm, nope, still needed that word. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, let's talk about going into the studio. Um, having a good song gives you a, something to say. But going into the studio gives it a voice, gives it an identity, not only the, to the song, but to you as an artist. Um, what do you do when you get into that environment that allows you to capture your sound? One thing is that um, we know that we don't want there to be any dead wood on our projects. We want to give our full attention to every song. Um, we will start out, and I think probably most people do this, to get that basic rhythm track of bass, drums, and rhythm guitar. That has to be really solid tempo and everything before we start building on that. Right. Right. The foundation. Um, going in the studio, you know, even though artists aren't making you know a lot of money, or, or some are, but you know, independent artists aren't making a lot of money off of their recording right now. It is just imperative to go in the studio, and I tell all the young people I know, you know, to find a way to go in the studio because that your your music under a microscope and with each studio project you get better by critiquing you know your music okay now let's talk a little bit about the lineup on this who's playing on it uh bill jones plays guitar on all 14 cuts um michael desantis is uh, our bass player. He's from Fort Collins, Colorado. He came to Austin about three years ago. We're very lucky that he joined our band. He is phenomenal. Um, we had several drummers. Uh, Jimmy Vaughn's drummer played on, on three of our cuts. Uh, Jason Corbier. We really enjoyed playing with him. Uh, fantastic uh, local drummer named Nina Singh played on Suspicion. And Richard Ross played on the rest of the cuts for the drums. Um, oh, uh, just a chiller local uh, piano player. You may be familiar with Matt Farrell. He played on four cuts. And the Texas Horns, led by Kaz Kazanoff. And uh, Al Gomez on trumpet. This doesn't get any better. Um, John Mills on, on baritone sax. They played on four of the cuts. And that was really, really fun. Nice. Okay. Uh, now, of course, you have to get it out there once you get this recorded. And you're working with Betsy Brown uh, from Blind Raccoon. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Betsy is, is just the best. And uh, we met Betsy through Sally Bankston of Blue Heart Records and Nola Blue Records. And Sally's a really good friend and just a great friend. Of, of music and musicians in general. Um, Betsy first uh, promoted our uh, Let's Do This Thing record. And it just, it just, it did great. She's been to Austin. We've taken her out cowboy boot shopping. So that's, you know, <laughs> okay. the, 
personally. Uh, and we got to, to see her personally in Memphis and at the Lone Star Blues and Heritage Fest. And uh, Betsy will just go the extra mile to make sure the music gets heard. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the industry itself. Now, we have been in this digital revolution now for over 20-something years. And, you know, it's not cheap to go into the studio and, and, you know, hire the musicians, hire the engineers and the studio time. And and then, of course, now you have to hire the PR and, and get it out there and send out copies on CD or whatever the case may be. And the consumer today don't doesn't really look at recorded music as a product anymore. They don't find it as something to purchase. It's it's available on their phone. It's a service. How has that shift affected you as an artist? Well, um, you know, I think you know, in the old days, if you had a, a hit, you could maybe buy a new house. You know, but I don't think it's that way anymore. Uh, fortunately for us. We have a lot of fans that are um, supportive and, and they actually buy our CDs, so that's great. Um, but we don't think of, of recording as, as a revenue source. In fact, we, we don't make back what we spend on the recording, selling the CDs. But we, we want to document our sound, our music, our, you know. And as I said, going in the studio... It's just the best thing to push you along as an artist and uh, hone your craft. And, and Bill here, and a, and a lot what we do is uh, I want people to be inspired by the music we play as I was inspired when I heard that kind of music. Uh, the way that I feel when I first heard some uh, really heavy blues, I want somebody else in the future to hear that and inspire them as well. So that's kind of our goal. Okay. Now, you know, I read an article recently um, where they looked at the music industry and of all the billions of dollars that it generates, only 12% gets sent back to the creators themselves, the artists, the musicians, the songwriters. The music industry is gluttonous with middlemen. Um, you know, aggregators, distributors, record companies, you know, streaming services. Everybody's taking a piece of the pie. You know, you look at the sports industry and, you know, even they have better equity than the music industry. They're getting up to 50% of the generated revenue is going back to the players, the actual people that are involved in creating the product. Um but as we move into the future, there is technologies that are coming up that are going to level that playing field and eliminate the need for these gatekeepers, for these aggregators, distributors, um, and, and basically create streaming services that are promising to, to give back to the artists up to 90% of the generated revenue. And this seems to be where we're heading into the future with this blockchain well, streaming. Very exciting. Blockchain streaming? Yep. Wow. Well, Richard, we need to know a whole lot more about that. 
<laughs> well, you know, there are there are uh, streaming services like Audius and Emanate that that are out there right now that are functioning as a streaming service that you can put your music up to up on it now. Uh, and it doesn't cost you anything. It's not like going through, you know, TuneCore or CD Baby or DistroKid or any of those other ones where you have to pay them and then they put it up. This is a direct point-to-point between you and your fans on this blockchain. And uh, it is, you know, and they're, like I said, they're, you would get paid immediately upon a stream. So that's how they, they work their model. Now, the other thing is this whole world of the NFTs, the non-fungible tokens. Um, one artist that I saw, he went up, there's a site called royalty.io. And what they're doing is they're allowing artists to sell a portion of their royalties. And this artist, Naz, what he did is he took two songs and he created these tokens that basically uh, equal to one half of his streaming royalties on these two songs. And he put them up for sale and he created these three tiers and of course the big tier you got vip tickets to a show you got a a zoom call with naz you've got all these little you know merch perks and all that stuff but you know you're paying for them and you get this token now the token basically gives you a financial interest in his music in other words as it streams you now get paid a portion of, of the token that you purchased And when you look at the numbers, he will have generated almost $600,000 off of that 50% on those two songs, plus gotten over 2,000 people that are going to have a a financial interest in in his music streaming as much as possible because they're going to make money on on it. They're going to make their money back, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it, it's almost like taking pennies and making dollars out of it. Is is virtually what you're doing. You know, the pennies that you get from streaming, you're now selling to your fans for dollars. Well, that's very interesting. I'm going to have to give that a good think and, and do a little research on that, Richard. <laughs> Like I say, this, I think, is where we're heading in the future. We're going to this decentralized financial system and this decentralized system that will eliminate all of these these entities in the music industry that have been taking a piece of the pie and basically giving all that power back to the artist so they can control how how the music is being put out there who is who is listening to it and and how it's being you know the the money's being generated where is it going they will have control of that the artists themselves the i think themselves. yeah i think that's an important thing you know what i mean it sounds like it certainly would be now one of the things i also noticed is that when the pandemic hit a lot of artists started to go on to the internet and doing live streams. They started to work their social media. Well, let's face it, they had time. 
And the fans started to notice that. They started to notice that when they did the live streams, it was in their living rooms. You know, so they, they, they saw the, you know, the treadmill that you used, that you would hang your laundry on. They, you know, they saw the, you know, the potted plant that Aunt Elsie gave you. You know what I mean? It's, okay. it's, they got a chance to see the artist in a different light. And a lot of artists picked up on this and they realized that the internet is like a broadcast network. And every artist is basically a reality show. Because, <laughs> let's face it, we've been in this reality show mentality for 20-something years. That's what network TV has been feeding us. So a lot of people are very acclimated to that kind of thing. And they really want to know what goes on behind the scenes. What is it like when you're not playing music? You know what I mean? They, um, you know, they want to see, you know, what your daily routine is. They want to see you sitting in your kitchen talking about things that are not so much music related, but just life related, you know, getting to know who you are as a person. And I think there is a huge potential market that never really looked at, um, small independent artists in small venues as a viable place to go and see music. They didn't have a frame of reference to that music in the moment mentality. Now, you're lucky being in Austin. You've got 6th Street, which is just a cornucopia of, of live music and, and entertainment. Yeah, that also, I mean, for us, back in the day, we played every club on 6th Street all the time. Right. Uh, we, t we tend to avoid 6th Street now like, like the plague. We do still love playing the, the Driscoll, uh, historic Driscoll Hotel Bar. But really, we, we like to play um, more on South Congress, which people okay. call SoCo. Yeah, it's a real hip and happening scene on South Congress. If we do go downtown, we're, we're not really on 6th Street. We go one street over and we play Antone's mm -hmm. nightclub on, on 5th Street. Well, yeah, but you have that, that, that whole mentality is there. You know what I mean? People are acclimated to live music there. They know that that's an entertainment option as opposed oh, yeah. to the rest of the country where that's not as accessible, you know, where you have that concentration of live music venues in that small area, you Most know? Definitely. Yes. So, you know, now these people who don't have this frame of reference, they see all this on the Internet, and now when they pass that marquee, that reality show or or pseudo celebrity that you create in social media, they see that name and they say, "I know that guy. I know that girl. You know, let's go check them out. I'd like to see them in person." You know, almost like, you know, if Kim Kardashian showed up somewhere and just stood there and did nothing, she would create a a, a crowd. You know, because of her her pseudo celebrity. And that's what I think, you know, we have to do now as independent artists is to look at that model and try to replicate that, that where it works for us and maintains our authenticity, but gets those new fans to kind of want to come and see us in person. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, we play first Saturdays at this fabulous club on South Congress called Sea Boys Heart and Soul. 
Um, and every time we play there, and you're right, especially since the pandemic and, and since we've been able to play again, and we did a lot of live streams during the pandemic, it does seem like there are always people from Europe, from other states at Seaboys. And, and possibly they saw us online. Also, Seaboys just has a reputation that if you go there, you're going to hear good music. Yep. Well, I, you know, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this, man. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Until ever so was saved Until every soul was saved Until ever so was saved
the blues until every soul was sane.
artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, honey. Gonna make. 